This is an ABC podcast. When Sasonke Msimung was a little girl, Nelson Mandela felt a little like Santa Claus. All her family talked about him and how amazing he was, but no one had seen him in years. I mean, was he even real? Sasonke grew up the daughter of a freedom fighter who had left South Africa as a young man to train in the ANC's new militia wing and had ended up as an exile, waiting for the day that Nelson Mandela would be released and he and his family could go home. Eventually, that happened, and Sasonke's family did return to South Africa, and she became part of a generation making change there, becoming a prominent writer and social justice activist. But life took some unexpected turns for Sasonke too, and she's now raising her children far from South Africa in the suburbs of Perth. Hi, Sasonke. Hi, Sarah. Your dad came from a big political family in South Africa. When did he join the fight against apartheid? He was 19 when he left home. Probably within that year, he had begun to hear about the African National Congress's um, moves towards starting an underground army. And so by 21, he was leaving the country. When he made that decision to leave the country, Sasonke, was that something he would have talked to his his parents about, his, his friends? Was it something he could confide in others about? Definitely not. Definitely not. So to just sort of put things in context... Um, This is the very early 1960s, and this is a time when Nelson Mandela has been um, making a lot of waves across the country. He's referred to as the Black Pimpernel. He pops up and disappears all over the country, Um, and he is being arrested for being this rabble-rousing lawyer. People absolutely love this young man with a, a big mouth and with a lot of gravitas. He was very revolutionary, so he wasn't the man that he came out as later on. He was a very, very militant leader. And so young people really loved Nelson Mandela, and my father was one of them. So he's He's making a lot of waves and creating a lot of trouble around the country. And so word gets out across different campuses that Nelson Mandela is starting a revolutionary underground movement and they are going to take up arms. Um, And so my father uh, hears about this and joins up and cannot, of course, tell anyone in his family because that would spell either death or imprisonment for anyone who knew the plan. Um, And so my father decides to join with a small group of people. I think there were five of them on his campus who knew about this plan. And they sneak off campus and cross the border uh, and are not allowed to tell their family, firstly, that they joined this this new wing of the ANC, but certainly they, they cannot say anything about the fact that they are leaving the country. So as far as their families were concerned, they were just still at school. And what was the plan for this new militia unit? What, what was the intention? So until the 1960s, the African National Congress, which was founded in 1910, was a largely nonviolent political movement. So if you think about Gandhi, uh, if you think about Martin Luther King, uh, it was a movement that was grounded in a sense that black people had dignity and would fight for their rights, but would do so without invoking violence. In 1960, actually, Chief Albert Lutuli, who was the president of the ANC at the time, was awarded the Nobel Prize for his stance on nonviolence. And at the same time, this revolutionary little younger group of ANC members led by Nelson Mandela were saying, we can no longer justify nonviolence because in 1961, a group of marchers were shot down. Many of them were shot in the back, the Sharpeville Massacre, which is celebrated and commemorated around the world today as um, on the 21st of March as Human Rights Day. The reason why globally and the United Nations adopted Human Rights Day on the 21st of March was on, on the basis of the Sharpeville Massacre. It was kind of this moment where the world realized what was happening in S- South Africa and said, this cannot happen again. And so that kind of spurred this group of revolutionaries into saying, we cannot meet violence with nonviolence. And so they were going to have this army and they were going to train outside the country and they were going to sneak back into the country in little cells and overthrow the government and then restore democracy, essentially. That was the plan. That's a big plan. Where did did your father and, and his comrades go for training after they'd snuck out from South Africa? So they left South Africa, went to Botswana, and then from there went to Tanzania and from Tanzania flew to Russia. 
Um, so there's always this joke in my family that the Russian ladies loved my dad, he says, he says, <laughs> <laughs> and that I could have, I could have been named Svetlana or Nikita or something like that. <laughs> Did he talk much about his time in, in the USSR besides his romantic triumphs? Like what kind of <laughs> training did he get there? You know, they were all really young. They were all men in their, you know, in their early to mid twenties. So it was an experience which in typical kind of communist USSR fashion, they were exposed to the ballet, you know, they went to the Bolshoi, they were shown what Russian life means. It was in part a propaganda tour. So obviously they went to the countryside, you know, they were shown the best, they were treated like royalty in some ways, but they were also taught how to use different kinds of guns. They were taught taught Morse code. My father's specialty was Morse code and um, being able to evade the enemy and, you know, through whatever. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so they were taught both some practical things, but also very much exposed to Russian culture and Russian society. And why didn't they then go and put these to use in, in South Africa? What had happened back home? Shortly after my father leaves, Nelson Mandela is arrested for the final time. He's been on the run. He's been on the lam. He's finally caught. And now he faces the Ravonia treason trial, which ultimately is what sentences him to life imprisonment on Robben Island, along with the entire leadership structure of the African National Congress. When they left, the African National Congress was still a legal entity inside apartheid South Africa. It was now a banned organization. All political parties representing any black thought or intellect or political aspiration were banned. And so they finish training in Russia and they head back to Africa. There's a camp that has been established in Tanzania, which serves as a sort of base for all the young people who are now beginning to train. So there's a, a slow trickle of South African exiles who begin to leave the country. They set up camp and they're kind of doing this You know, the ungenerous part of me wants to say pantomiming revolution, what you do when you pretend at being a soldier, because there is no one in charge at home and there are no orders to come back because the movement is in disarray. And so this is a deeply frustrating time for my my father. And so uh, different um, organizations and people start to make different plans for small groups of these soldiers. And eventually my father makes his way to Lusaka, which is the capital city of Zambia. Zambia by this time, it's achieved independence from the British um, under the leadership of this remarkable man called Kenneth Kaunda, who essentially says to all the liberation movements, all his comrades still fighting for freedom and justice, he says to them, you will be allowed to operate from my country. Um, So come set up your headquarters. The Zambian people who are poor, by the way, (laughs) will will house you, will protect you, will keep you safe. And so my father makes his way there. And that's where he meets my mom. How did they meet? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I actually don't know the answer to the precise moment that they met. Um, My mom was a student. She was from Swaziland. Swaziland is a tiny little country that's virtually enclosed by South Africa. So it shares a border with South Africa on three sides. It was colonized by the British, so uh, luckily escaped apartheid. And so she was very, very smart. Um, She had won the highest marks in her her year of, of high school. And so she was sent by her government on a scholarship to study at this um, university based in Lusaka. And so the Swazis and the South Africans obviously all hung out together because they had similar language, similar culture. And so she caught his eye. She was a pretty young Swazi thing. (laughs) She took some convincing about this revolutionary with ragged rugged hair and a scrawny beard. Um, But yes, then they ended up dating. How did they look on their wedding day, Sasanke? Uh, my mom was wearing, it was the 70s, so my mom was wearing white knee-high boots and a little white micro mini dress. <laughs> and my father borrowed a tie from somebody and he was wearing some kind of, you know, horrible brown jacket. And I think he was wearing his, um, he had these safari boots that he always wore as we were growing up. And I think he was wearing those. Not too much longer after after that, you came along. And so your early days, your early years were spent in Zambia. How different were your mum and dad from the other families in the apartment blocks you'd live in? So my mum, when she finished school, she was offered a job immediately and it came with housing. So it came with a little flat. And because my father was um, revolutionary and unemployed... <laughs> 
Um, that's where they lived. Um, and this meant that they were in a block of housing that was filled with other Zambians. And so they were living amongst local people. And my mom and dad were very, very different because of my father's politics, because they were mixing with other revolutionaries a lot. Our house had, lot, had lots of parties. My mom was often accused of being a bit of a snob because she liked to play tennis and she was doing French lessons. So she had this sense of herself in the world. And I'm not quite sure where she got it because she herself was raised in a very rural environment. And even just going to Zambia and studying, I mean, I think my mom's smarts took her many places in the world, but I don't quite know where she got that sense of herself as this tennis playing, you know, African young woman. She must have shared your dad's politics, I, I assume, if she agreed to marry this revolutionary in exile. I think my mom loved my dad and I think she understood the political cause. Uh, there was no way you could disagree as an African with the notion that Africans needed to be liberated from apartheid. I think she was very skeptical of some of the comrades. Um, you know, the freedom struggle was full of people who were both filled with a sense of self-righteousness, understandably. Um, and it because the moral cause was so stark, it was black and white. And so you could be any kind of person, even of dubious moral character, but in those conditions, you became a hero. And I think my mom had a good finger on the pulse for people who were doing heroic things because they believed in them. And she also had a good nose for people who happened because of circumstance to be on the right side of the cause. And so she was always skeptical of some of the people with whom we were surrounded. And she, she often counseled my dad about that. I remember many conversations with her saying, be careful of these people. Be careful of the struggle of yours. She would often say, the struggle of yours. <laughs> Your parents had two more little girls. So you were the eldest of three, Sasonke. Were you the boss of that gang? I was the boss of that gang. Um, and, and of course, as we've grown up, I... Um, have become less the boss of the gang, sadly. It's been an uprising <laughs> in your own ranks. There has been an absolute revolution. <laughs> I was the boss of that gang. I am three years older than the sister who follows me, and 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 then she's she's two years older than the next one. And so I do remember many times feeling so much older than them and that they were just so boring and that they were such babies. But the more we traveled around the world, the closer we had to be because we were often in situations where we were the only ones, where we were in an environment where, you know, we were new all over again. And so that made us very, very close. How much were you told about what life was like in South Africa or, or life more generally outside of the protective bubble of your own family and your own circle? I mean, were you being raised to, to be revolutionaries? We were. We were definitely being raised to be revolutionaries. But of course, we experienced that as in the way that children experience everything. So, you know, when you're little, life is... First of all, you have nothing to compare things to. And then life is fun because you're a kid. And so, um, you know, we did lots of things like, and when I think back on it or when I tell people about it, <laughs> you know, there's always a bit of laughter about it. But um, because so many of the other uh, freedom fighters and comrades, as, as they were called, in our community had also either studied or trained in Russia, like my father, there was quite a contingent of Ru Russian wives. And so Auntie Rita um, and Auntie Ruth were, were very much part of that environment, and they were both uh, Russian women. And so they would um, take us for young pioneers training. Young pioneers trainings was essentially kids learning about socialism and communism. And so we would do that every weekend, and we would learn freedom songs and chants and marches, very militaristic. <laughs> we would learn Marx. You know, so from a very young age, I understood the politics of poverty, of inequality. I understood, you know, the, the, the fight and the role that we were being raised to fight against apartheid and fight against injustice. That was what I would have told you if you had met me when I was eight years old. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed already. I can, I can imagine you like with a little <laughs> kerchief on and, and wording me up probably pretty wisely, I'd say. Absolutely. Tell me about Gogo Lindy. Was Gogo your granny? Gogo was like my granny and sadly she passed away in October last year and that was very difficult to be far away from 
uh, South Africa at the time when she passed away, but she was hugely influential in my life. She was a, a distant relative of my father. And of course, we found ourselves all in Lusaka together. So distant relative becomes absolutely flesh and blood, you know, your closest um, in that environment. And she had studied in America and she had quit, left her life as an academic in America because of her revolutionary fervor and decided that she was going to be the head of Radio Freedom. So Radio Freedom was the, the, the entity that broadcast illicitly into South Africa, across the airwaves into South Africa. So she was always arguing with men. She was always very certain that she was correct. She was very cultured and she dressed it beautifully and she always had these amazing braided hairstyles and so for me she was like the definition of what it meant to be really an independent woman she was the first woman i ever met and knew who didn't have a husband had a child and seemed in no way interested in having a husband what was the game of olympics that the two of you would play together so a big part of what she did, and I think in retrospect, a lot of the adults that we we were around when we were little, because a part of what the project of apartheid was about making black people feel as though we were worthless, was about diminishing the humanity of black people. And so the environment in which my sisters and I grew up was very much about the project of making all of these children who they referred to, they called us born freeze because we were not born in South Africa. And so we had a sense of ourselves as being entirely capable of doing whatever we wanted, but also being very, very special because the adults around us made us feel like we were very special. And so Goko and I had this game where I would do all of this gymnastics. I love gymnastics. And she was preparing me to participate in the Atlanta Olympics, which were going to be in 1984, and I was going to be old enough to tumble around <laughs> and win an Olympic gold medal. And I absolutely believed that this was possible because Gokulindi made me believe that it was possible. Where did your family, still in exile from South Africa, move next after Zambia? In 1982, we moved to Nairobi because my father had uh, a volunteer position working for the United Nations. So he was, wasn't getting paid a lot of money, but it was a way for him to begin to establish a career. My mom was pushing him to say, this revolution stuff is really nice, but it doesn't put food on the table. And, you know, when is this Nelson Mandela guy ever actually going to be released from prison? <laughs> um, you know, there was a, of course, there was a, uh, I'm being, I'm, a, I'm being a bit, um, you know, sarcastic in saying this, but there was a real need for us to, to, to have opportunities and a real life. We were kids who were stateless, essentially. And so my mom was, was worried about us. And, and so we moved to Nairobi, to, you know, for that reason. How did Nairobi compare to Lusaka? Very different. Nairobi is a much bigger city than Lusaka. It's a very busy city. And it was a city that did not, it was a country that did not have a, any historical ties to the freedom struggle. So whereas Kenneth Kaunda had welcomed the liberation movements, this is in East Africa, so much further north, and you didn't have a significant South African community there. So there were still people. We still found other South Africans. We were still very much part of the, the community, um, but it was much smaller and a much less sort of welcoming environment for us. Your family moved again to, to Canada. How did they decide where to settle when the opportunity to move to Canada came about? So again, my, my mother, formidable in her decision-making capacities and always looking ahead to say, what's, what, so what are we going to do with these girls? What's going to happen? And so in the 1984, we moved to Canada. They had no idea. My parents looked at several places. Australia was one of them. So I could have, you know, had a very different story. Um, but Canada accepted them. And, um, and my mother says she remembers when being provided with the visa that allowed, allowed us to, to move. She says um, at the embassy, they asked, so where should we go? We have three, three girls, like, where should we go? And this, this man uh, looked at them and said, you've got a young family. Saskatoon's a great place to live. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of like the equivalent of, I don't know what little... It would, be like, it would be like telling an African family to move to 
Broken yeah. Hill. It's like, wow. Um, so it's in the middle of prairie land. <laughs> it's hot, hot summer when we arrive. And there literally are no black people. <laughs> and looks as though there never have been. <laughs> and how old were you, Susunke? I was 10. I and, was 10. And what do you remember about that? I mean... I remember it being hot and I remember it feeling like an adventure. Um, and I remember for the first time in our lives, it was just us. You know, in Lusaka, there was always a crowd. We were always part of a community. We were being, you know, we were, people were sleeping in our house or we were sleeping at someone else's house or there were parties or there, were, oh, there was the young pioneers. There was always something. And the same was the case in Nairobi. It was a smaller community, but still a very rich, full life. And of course, we were living in African countries. So everybody just looked like us. So I didn't, I never had to think about that. And then, of course, <laughs> being in Saskatoon was the first time that I felt different. Um, and it was, it was, there was no school and there was no structure because we arrived in the middle of summer. So I didn't feel it in any kind of horrible way. It just was an observation. But more than anything, it felt like, wow, there's nobody to hang out with other than ourselves. Very nuclear for the first time. Your family ended up in, in Ottawa. What happened one day at school? So we had just arrived in Ottawa, actually, and um, started at a new school. And I started to feel, the, for the first time, the self-consciousness of what it meant to be the only black person around. My sisters and I were the only black kids in the school. Um, and we had just started. And um, I stayed one day after school with a bunch of other kids, sort of trying to fit in and be on the crew. And I was playing, um, you know, on the play area outside on some monkey bars. And um, as I did that, um, you know, this this kid, this boy says, oh, look at the monkey on the monkey bars. And all of these other kids sort of started to, you know, make sounds as like a monkey, you know. And it was so humiliating, so painful. Um, and tears welled up and I raced home and, you know, got home and told my mom, you know, the story and sort of collapsed in her arms. And my dad came home from, from work and, and uh, we talked about it as a family and I told him what happened. And his, <laughs> his, his first question was, what did you do when that happened? And I said, I cried and I ran home. And he said, you didn't hit them? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't fight back? What's you know? all this training been for? Exactly. <laughs> this revolutionary child of mine is a wimp, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. And... Um, <laughs> But of course, you know, the, the thing is about my dad was that the, the idea that anyone would ever try to bully you and that you accept it was, was just, yeah, that was just not within his mind frame. And so he came, you know, when we went to school together the following day and he walked into the principal's office and, and um, explained what had happened. And the principal uh, sort of looked at him blankly, like, you know, kind of like, well, that was terrible. But he also said, you know, you guys are in Canada and these things are going to happen to Sasanke and she needs to prepare herself. And my dad was like, absolutely not. These things are not going to happen to my daughter and she does not need to prepare herself. You know, what kind of school thinks that is acceptable for things like this to happen? We must just shrug it off. Absolutely not. I did not come to Canada as a refugee. <laughs> I'm so Fighting. loving your dad in this moment. But how were you feeling about him at the I time? I was feeling horrible. And he was like, I didn't leave my country as a freedom fighter to come here and have this happen to my child. And I'm like, just shrinking. I am like, so embarrassed. Everything about this entire scene was against my will. I didn't want him to come to school. Like all of this is doing is attracting more more attention with my dad, who is a six foot five Zulu man, you know, taking up all the space in the hallway and like everybody doing exactly what I don't want them to do, which is look at me. <laughs> so what happened? So he, um, so the, the principal was duly chastened and, and essentially my dad was like, she's going to get an apology because this should not have happened. And that's the only way that this is going to resolve itself. And so to his credit, the principal said, yep. And off we went and we go into the classroom and he pulled my teacher to the side. I'll never forget it. The two of them huddled in the corner and I'm standing in this, like trying to sort of blend into the wall. And, um, and then the, my teacher sort of pulls me up to the front and he says, um, class, yesterday something very bad happened to Sasanke after school. Um, you know, some kids were making fun of her and making her feel bad. 
And I want everyone to know that that is not acceptable. And so everyone's in silence, you know, glaring at me. And then he said, and I want us all to say together, sorry, Sisanke. And now all together, the, everyone in the class said, sorry, Sisanke. And my dad was outside. He didn't come in. He was sort of in the hall. And I could see his little, you know, I could see little piece of him through those, you know, the doors, the, the sort of oblong do- doors. And, um, and then he left, you know, he, he, he was satisfied that it had happened and he left. And it was a really important and powerful lesson for me as a kid that age. And it's something I've carried with me in everything that I do, which is that when racist stuff happens to you, the responsibility for fixing that racism lies with the people who were racist, not with you. And so for me, you know, it just gave me this enormous sense that something bad had happened and an apology had been issued and that was the right thing to have been done. And I think that if my parents had ignored it or if I had just carried that, I think it would have hardened and become shame. Mm-hmm. And and having an apology meant that it I wasn't ashamed because it had been recognized that I didn't do anything wrong. They did. Podcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. So you had been raised your whole life, Sasanke, with these stories of Nelson Mandela as the leader in this fight against apartheid in South Africa. But, I mean, did you even know what he looked like? Nobody knew what he looked like. After he gave his incredible famous speech, uh, I am the first accused. You know, he stood up and he gave this remarkable speech. You know, he's on trial, he's on the dock, and essentially he's fighting for his life. He and the the men who had been captured with him for sabotage, they had been trying to blow up an electricity pylon in order to kind of cause chaos in Johannesburg. And they had been found with explosives and so on and so forth. So it was very clear they had done it. And so the entire trial was a trial that Nelson Mandela and his comrades orchestrated to be a platform to tell the world about what was happening in South Africa. So they never denied guilt, they said. Absolutely, we did it. And let's tell you why. So it was remarkable. And of course, they were facing the gallows. So it was very, very possible that they were going to be sentenced to death for admitting to trying to overthrow the state. But of course, he was incredibly dangerous and incredibly smart. Dangerous in that people loved him. And the the case was heard around the world. It was very clear that that judge was not going to sentence him to death because they would have turned him into a martyr and the country would have exploded. And so they, they sentenced those men to life in prison on Robben Island. And they said at the time that no images of him were allowed to be distributed. So nobody knew what he looked like. And so as he got older and older, none of us knew what he looked like. And so the ANC turned the pictures that we had of him as he had gone into jail, those pictures became what was shown around the world. We decided that this was going to be the poster child for our revolution. And so we knew what he'd look like when he went in, but nobody knew what he looked was he what he was going to look like when he came out. And no one of course knew whether he was going to get out, right? It's it's hard to imagine now given that we know what happened, but actually we didn't know if he was going to come out and we didn't know how old he would be, none of that. Particularly for you, like as a, as a young girl, a teenager growing up, where he's almost must have felt like part of your family mythology. As he much was like as Santa Claus. <laughs> he was like Santa Claus. <laughs> um, and, you know, there was certainly a stage in our teens, in our early teens, where my parents would be yet again talking about Mandela. Like all the adults would be yet again talking about freedom and talking about Mandela and and we, you know, we would be sort of rolling our eyes going, yeah, right, like that guy's ever going to get out, you know, ha ha. So when <laughs> did you first see him as he was once he was released? Do you remember that first image, the first time you saw the real man behind all of the myth-making, all of the, the political language? Oh, I'll never forget it. It was February 1990 and there had been this whispers, 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 he's getting out, he's getting out, he's getting out. And and then he was getting out. He was um, 
the footage was rolling all day and we watched him. We, I was living in Nairobi at the time. I was um, 17 and the cameras were trained on the prison gates and it was this beautiful, beautiful blue sky. And there were all these cars and all these people milling around. And then suddenly you saw this gray head and this very tall, rail thin man. And you have to remember that Nelson Mandela was bulky. He was a boxer. He was a significant, very heavy man in his younger days. And so, you know, prison had thinned him out and there he was. But it was like this unmistakable, this, this face and this twinkle and this smile and his fist raised in the air. And he was standing next to Winnie Mandela. And I wept, wept. All of us were just in the house Weeping. I wasn't with my family. My, my parents had moved to Ethiopia with my sisters at that time, but I was finishing my last year of, of high school back in Nairobi because we had left Canada and moved back to Nairobi. And um, I was staying with an auntie and uncle, and we just wept. It was remarkable. How long after that incredible moment did you find yourself in South Africa for the first time? I went immediately. I got myself organized on my own. <laughs> I was a very spunky, you know, teenager. <laughs> and I had a Canadian passport. We had lived in Canada and, and become citizens. Obviously, that was part of the deal. My father was still very concerned that, that this may be a trap. You know, a lot of the comrades were, were, were skeptical that this was the real deal. Remember, it was very tumultuous time. Mandela was free, but what did this really mean? Could we really trust the other side, essentially? And I said, well, I'm not a freedom fighter, and they're not looking for me, and I didn't leave the country legally, so that's your problem. I'm going home. <laughs> and so I did in December that year. Who did you get to meet for the first time once you were back in South Africa? Everybody, cousins and aunties and people who my father had talked about you know, when we were growing up, his favorite cousin, Aunt Gugu, and she had all these stories about them being naughty and silly together, you know, in high school. It was amazing to have all these cousins who looked exactly like me, and yet I had never seen these people, and our life experiences were so different. But probably the most remarkable meeting was with my grandfather. That was very, very special. What um, happened that first day that you met him? So we went to Peter Maritzburg, to the, to the house where my, my dad spent his youngest years, and um, we sat with him and it was, you know, very strange seeing this man. You know, when you grow up in exile without a lot of family around, you're the only people who look like you, you know. So we, it was weird to see relatives, you know, to have this man who was my father's father. Oh, look, my dad looked like his father. You know, it sounds silly, but he looked like him, you know. Um, anyway, and so we sat and we had a lovely catch up and then it was time to leave. And uh, we were standing on the veranda and Edendale overlooks these beautiful mountain range. And so we were standing on the veranda of this falling down old decrepit house that my grandfather still lived in. And um, I was a few steps ahead of him. And he said, you know, the last time I saw your father, I was 17 at the time, and he said, the last time I saw your father, he was your age. Um, and he was standing on the steps with his back towards me in exactly the same way, and he was leaving for university. And I still haven't seen him to this day, but I see you. <gasps> so that was pretty... <laughs> so you had the incredible power of, of meeting family for the first time, but this was a place where apartheid was still in sway. There had not been the first democratic elections yet in South Africa. Right. What was your experience of, of the system of apartheid that your family had been fighting against? My cousins, Lindy and Jumi, who were like brother and sister to me, we had grown up together. And then, of course, we had... Um, I would put cousins in inverted commas. Everyone's a cousin for many of us in Africa. <laughs> and so these other cousins had come from Swaziland to meet us. So there was a sort of big crew of us who were around who had the sense of ourselves as having never been cowed by apartheid. You know, that we were, we, this was the arrogance of the born freeze, right? That we had never lived under the thumb of apartheid. And so we thought we were going to come to South Africa and stick it to everybody that we met. If we walked into a restaurant and they tried to treat us with racism, we were going to tell them exactly where to get off. And that's essentially what we did <laughs> because we were we were calling it upon ourselves, you know. <laughs> did that feel great? It felt great. It, it felt great. Um, and, and it felt, um, how do I say, it felt like being in the right place at the right time. It just, from the first moment I set foot in South Africa, felt like I was doing what I was always supposed to do. I was home. 
even when we were fighting and arguing, uh, whether it was, you know, seeing cousins for the first time, I just felt like this is what I have lived my entire life for. It was just remarkable. That trip had this glow about it. And yes, we got in lots of fights. An old lady in the Hillbrow, which was a sort of mixed area, a place where um, there was beginning to be convergence in Johannesburg between black people and white people. Um, and we were at a restaurant there and this white lady said, this is such bad breeding because we were causing a ruckus, you know. <laughs> and we went off on her, you know, and we felt so good. <laughs> um, but it was complicated. It was It was a complicated country and that was always the sort of undercurrent, that that was a moment of euphoria. And it preceded a lot of what then happened, which was that the stakes got very, very high, very, very quickly. And so the next few years, you know, 1990 to 1994 were a race towards freedom. And that race was filled with many, many obstacles. Um, many people died in that period. My family moved home the following year, you know, officially and formally. And everything was about preparing for elections. It was about negotiating so that elections would even happen. It was a very, very difficult time. And it coincided with my time going to the United States to study. So I was, I, I was very engaged. I was home for holidays, but I wasn't living in South Africa the way that my, my, my sisters and my, and my parents were. Well, in 1994, when you were 20, about the same age that your dad was when he left South Africa... The first free democratic elections were held. Tell me about your experience of voting. Where were you? I was in America. I was um, studying for my bachelor's degree uh, in this, at a small college in Minnesota. And there was a group of South African students uh, at various colleges and universities around the Twin Cities. For as a reference point, Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities is where George Floyd was, was murdered, you know, last year two years ago. Um, so Twin Cities. And we drove overnight for 10 hours from Minneapolis to Chicago. We didn't have money to sleep in a hotel room. So we slept in the van. <laughs> and we woke up uh, on the morning of the 27th of April. And we went into the South African consulate, which was in this you know fancy building in downtown Chicago. And it was a place where we would have had absolutely no right to enter before that moment as black, as young black people. Um, and we cast our vote and it was the most beautiful day to still, it is one of the most beautiful days of my life. Just the feeling of looking at that ballot paper and looking at Nelson Mandela's face because of high levels of illiteracy, high levels of disadvantage. It was very clear there had to be pictures of everyone next to, so you know who you're voting for, right? Otherwise, we were worried that they were going to steal the vote uh, from us. And so there was a picture of Nelson Mandela's head, and I marked my ex exactly next to his face. He was, of course, successful in that election and became the first president of a, of a democratic South Africa. Once you moved back home, this sort of longed-for dream for you and your parents, what were your parents doing? My parents were very, very busy. Um, my father, in his years in exile, that first volunteer position for the United Nations turned into actually a full-time role with the United Nations, working largely on um, humanitarian relief operations. My dad speaks many, many African languages, but very quickly got pulled in, like so many of the people from exile, into work in the senior public service. So rebuilding this public service that it essentially existed to cater for white people, black people, Indian people, all separately, you know? So there were millions and millions of departments all set up to, to, to cater to this particular identity in this particular way. It was madness. And so the public service really needed a revamping. And so my father went to work first for the national parks as the first black uh, head of all the national park service, and then later on as the head of uh, home affairs. Head of home affairs. And what about your mom? And my mom, she got the entrepreneurial bug. You know, I always joke about the fact that my mom was an accountant and my dad was a freedom fighter. So she was the <laughs> pragmatist <laughs> and he was the dreamer. And um, when we got home to South Africa, my, my mom realized that she loved starting businesses and she wanted to, she ran this very popular restaurant, the first African restaurant in Pretoria when they moved to, to the capital city, um, which was a real meeting place for lots of people from exile and lots of people in the new New, you know, public service and administration. Um, and then she branched out and did lots and lots of other little investments here and there. She was very, very busy. 
And you were making your own mark in time too, Sison Kay. You became the first black woman to have a weekly newspaper column. I did, yes, in in South Africa. I mean, it's remarkable that it happened so late. <laughs> but yes, uh, for for that particular publication, I was the first first black woman to have a column. I, like my dad, I guess, I followed in his footsteps and was really interested in public policy and so did a lot of work on human rights, worked for the UN briefly, uh, but then for lots of nonprofit organizations. And my, my life in South Africa was very much defined by the kind of new struggle of my generation, which was very much... Uh, about the pandemic that was gripping the country at that time, and that was HIV and AIDS. Mm. It's been uh, very different living through a different kind of pandemic in the last few years, but AIDS really was a pandemic that was about um, social inequality. It traveled along all the cracks of our country, and it was women in particular who found themselves living with HIV uh, and unable to access medicines, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the fight of my life. What kind of reactions would you get from readers to, to the columns you were writing? You know, it was very interesting because I came to writing having already done the work around HIV and around human rights and activism. So I was used to being a big mouth and having strong opinions. <laughs> and I didn't think that sharing those opinions in a in a weekly publication would be any big deal. And it was a huge deal. I got trolled and trolled and trolled. <laughs> and it was really confronting, actually. But I also, at the same time, got a lot of love. And so I realized that there was a segment of my readership that looked forward to my columns and really could relate to the the difficulties that I was talking about, the challenges I was making about where our country was going, and then that there was a segment of our population that would never agree with anything that I said simply because of who I was. Um, and in some ways that was freeing because then I just said whatever I wanted to say. And in some ways it was deeply disturbing because it spoke to the polarization of a society that had been built in the shadows of apartheid where we were precisely trying to get away from that polarization because the people who tended to agree with me were largely young and black and the people who tended to disagree with me were largely older and white. And that was disturbing to me and continues to be a source of disappointment. What were your interactions like with white South Africans? I mean, you had this public role through your, your writing, your activism, but what about interactions on the streets, in the shops, in, in cars? How was it to be a black South African around white South Africans in that time? You look, things shifted. You know, I think in the beginning, there were lots of very <laughs> confronting, crazy moments I remember very specifically, uh, we had just moved home. My sister and I were going into the grocery store, sort of, you know, your typical Woolies, Coles experience. You're in the car park. And this woman, you know, tried to steal a, a spot from me. You know, that was always happening. There were these car, my sister referred to them as the car park wars. <laughs> and then and there would, would that be, be because the presumption would have been under apartheid, a white driver had the right to take whatever car Absolutely. park they wanted? Absolutely. Uh -huh. So there was a combination of that and the fact that there was the sense that if you were a middle class black person, there was so much resentment towards you by white South Africans, by many. I mean, I, I don't want to generalize, but, but there was certainly a, a tension around who do you think you are, right? So both an expectation that before you would have uh, conceded to the white person and let them go, or this sense that even if that wouldn't have happened before, who do you think you are? You have no right to be sitting in that car. You have no right to be driving. All of that kind of stuff. Back then, Sasonke, if you were going to imagine the man that you might fall in love with and maybe marry and have kids with, who would you have pictured in your mind? Um, I probably would have pictured somebody who looked like Idris Elba. <laughs> <laughs> so so what happened in reality? In reality, I met this very very handsome young youngish man who walked into my office in Pretoria. Um I was working for the Australian High Commission, uh actually what used to be Ausaid, and uh I had this meeting with a consultant and it was uh the man who is now my husband Simon. So Aussie born and raised in Perth 
and and the, and we met, and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> was it smooth sailing, though? I mean, given that he was not Idris Elba, but a white Australian, was there part of you that didn't want to accept yeah. that you could fall in love with him? Well, you know, in my college days, I was insufferable with my politics. I was incredibly <laughs> self-righteous about white people being pretty ridiculous um, in <laughs> uh, in their racism. I was very, very outspoken and there was absolutely no way that I was going to create any space for any white people in my life in any way. And karma, of course, is <laughs> something else. <laughs> so with my family, it wasn't a big deal at all. Obviously, the the South Africa they had fought for was a South Africa that was going to be non-racial in principle. And I think that that was very much a part of how we grew up, that our house was full of people of all all races. That was never an issue. But for me, as, as a, a young black woman who really was grappling with my identity, what it meant to live in the world and fight for justice in a world where black people so seldom got justice and often injustice meted out either by systems or by individuals that were white, it was very mm. difficult for me to think about what this relationship was really going to look like and, and was this actually a sustainable relationship. And I do still think that it is important, given the society that we live in, it is important to not wander into an interracial relationship or a relationship in which you come from different cultures or even a relationship in which you come from dramatically different anything, any kind of circumstances. It's important not to wander into that like a little Bambi, like a lost lamb and think everything is going to be kumbaya. Um, because <laughs> what, what did your mum think about it? Did she have any advice for you? She loved, she absolutely loved my husband. And in many ways, it was her respect for him, her admiration for him as a, as a human, as a good man that w went a long way with me towards satisfying some of those questions. I think there's this politics and politics really matters as, you know, politics has always really mattered to me. And then there are things that are more difficult to explain. And, that, and, and I think love is one of those things. I think when you find someone who respects you and who cares about you and who you respect and who you admire and who makes you smile in a way that nobody else can, I think it's Im impossible to turn your heart away from that simply because you have a kind of philosophical, you know, orientation that says I shouldn't be in love with this person. 10, 15 years after that first democratic vote in South Africa, there was increasing violence. There's terrible poverty. There was the whole HIV epidemic that you, you'd mentioned. There was enormous suffering and hardship and violence and crime across the country. How close did that come to your family? Very close. Uh, it's impossible to live in South Africa, no matter what class you are, without dealing with daily violence. And the poorer you are, of course, the more violent impinges on your dignity and on your ability to, to move. In our case, uh, we had a terrible incident that involved my oldest daughter. She's now 14, but at the time she was just 18 months. And um, it was uh, middle of the day in Johannesburg in our you know, suburb, uh, a, a pretty neighborhood. And um, the nanny was walking her and... Um, they were approached uh, by a man who took out a gun and pointed it at the baby and, and said that if, the, if Nikki, the woman who, who worked um, for us, if she didn't hand over her phone, that he would shoot the baby. And Nikki was remarkable with keeping her wits about her and managing to flag down for help and scare off the guy. And it could have ended in a very different way. And that was sort of a moment of realization for both of us, but certainly much more for Simon, who had grown up in sunny, safe, you know, relatively safe Perth. It was just incomprehensible that something like that could happen as you were just walking down the street. Even with something as terrifying as that, how much of a struggle was it for you to consider leaving this country that you had grown up longing for and to be there in these first decades of its independence? What kind of wrestle was that to, to have your family safety on one side and, and the future of your country on the other? 
It was very difficult. And I will be honest, if Simon had not been Australian, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have left. So it was a very difficult decision. When I think about my mother and the kinds of choices that she made for my sisters and I, which were always about giving us as many options to be as free as we could, I'm very convinced that I made the right decision, that we made the right decision. But it was a very difficult decision because, of course, part of me said that people didn't fight and die for South Africa's freedom for me to then turn around and abandon it when things got difficult. It's something I wrestle with a lot. I'm sure you haven't abandoned South Africa, Sisonke. How do you maintain that relationship all the way from Perth, the connection to your homeland? It's a very complicated question, Sarah, you know, because initially the deal was that we would come here and test it out. So in my mind, I was still holding on to this idea because South Africa has been the defining idea of my life. It has been the thing around which I have organized how I think about myself, who I am, uh, everything that I believe about justice, about the possibility of us living in a world without racism, where systems and structures can be remade in order to, in order to help people rather than hurt them. Everything about that concept is Im embedded in the notion of South Africa for me. And so going anywhere, this was not personal to Australia, but going anywhere that wasn't South Africa was just like, what is going on? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> Why would I be doing this? Um, and so it has forced me to think about myself very differently. So who am I if not uh, an embodiment of South Africa. I've maintained very close links. Of course, everyone I love is still there. I do lots of work with young people who are writer, emerging writers. I've published, you know, books uh, uh, that are about the South African struggle for dignity and humanity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I will say that in the three years that I wasn't allowed to go home because of COVID, I have had to think about who I am in very different ways. Um, South Africa is certainly a huge part of my identity, but I am beginning to think about what it means to be a person of the world in different ways. Perth is so lucky to have you, Sisonke, as are we on Conversations. Thank you so much for being my guest. <laughs> my pleasure. Sisonke Msamang was my guest today, and she's the author of two books, a memoir called Always Another Country and a biography, The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.